Do you ever feel like there's a gap in your life between what you've heard about God and maybe even what you believe or want to believe about God and what you're actually experiencing with him? Have you ever felt like there's a gap between, okay, this is what I've heard. This is what people have told me. This is what I want to be true about God. But when I look at my life, it doesn't seem that way. Have you ever had to live in that gap? I remember um, there's this biography of a man named George Mueller. Uh, He was a pastor and uh, he started this orphanage in England or Scotland or somewhere in the United Kingdom uh, in the 1800s. And his biography is incredible. And he was just such a man of prayer. And he would have these days where at the orphanage, they wouldn't have any milk for the kids or they wouldn't have any eggs. And he would just get up every day at like, I don't know, 2 a.m. I mean, he just woke up like he'd barely slept. And he would get up early in the morning and just go before the Lord in prayer for you know, several hours and ask God to provide milk or eggs or whatever they needed that day. And literally there would just be a truck pull up. And I mean, not a truck, but you know, it's the 1800s, but the equivalent of a truck. <laughs> um, and so they would just show up and there would be milk. And it's like, wow. And in fact, he built this whole orphanage and he cared for just, I mean, a huge number of orphans during his lifetime. And he never fundraised. He was committed to not doing fundraising. He was just going to pray and ask God to provide. And that's what happened. It's phenomenal. You can go read about it. There was this one time where he was on a boat traveling from the UK to the United States. He was going to do some uh, speaking in the United States about some of the things that was happening in, in his orphanage. And on the way, there was this terrible fog and the captain of this boat was afraid and wasn't sure what was going to happen because the fog was so dense. And, um, and so he asked George Mueller to go and pray and ask God to take the fog away. And George Mueller just says, there's no reason for me to pray about it. I've already talked to God and he's already taken the fog away. And the captain goes back out and the fog's all gone. And he's like, and the captain wasn't a Christian. So he's like, what in the world is going on? And so the captain became a Christian um, because of George Mueller's prayer. And like, I, I read stories like that and my faith is inspired and it grows. And I'm like, oh my goodness, God, that is the kind of God I want you to be. That's the kind of God I want to follow. That's the kind of God that I believe in. I believe you can do that, God. But if I'm honest, there's a gap between what I've heard about him and what I want to be true about him and what I actually experience many times. God, you can provide milk and eggs for George Mueller and the orphanage, but but why do you seem to not be answering my prayers? Have you ever had to live in that gap? Have you ever had to think, God, this is what I've read about in your word. This is what I've heard other people tell me stories about you and your faithfulness and your goodness and your kindness and your provision and all of these great things. But, but God, that's not what I see in my life right now. Have you ever had to live in that gap? Maybe it's a health thing. You've been asking for God to heal you and you've heard stories 
from the Bible about how God heals and you've heard stories from other Christians about how God heals, but God is not answering that prayer for you. Maybe it's a financial thing. You've heard stories of God providing for people in the Bible or in your life, but there's a gap between what you've heard about his faithfulness financially and what you're experiencing in your life. Maybe you're single and you've been doing the right things. You've been trying to follow the Lord and you've been asking him to help you meet someone, but you haven't. And you've got friends who have met someone and they didn't even pray about it. And so it's like, God, what are you doing? Maybe that's how you feel about asking God for a child. And you've been struggling with infertility and you've heard stories from the Bible about how God provided and you've heard stories from people about how God provided, but there's a gap between what you've heard and what you're experiencing. Maybe this is how you feel about your relationship with your kids. You've heard that if you will raise up your kids in the ways of the Lord, that when they're old, they won't depart from it. That's what you've heard. And that's, you've heard stories at you know, parenting conferences about these are the things you're supposed to do. And here's the good stuff that'll happen if you do them. But you look at your life and it doesn't seem to be playing out that way. You would love to have a great relationship with all of your children, but there's one or there's two. And it just seems like there's this growing distance between you. And you've heard that God can reconcile all things. And yet it doesn't seem like that's what's happening in your life. You've heard stories about people who devoted their career to the Lord. They offered up their business dealings to the Lord and he blessed them. And you believe God can do that. You trust that God has done that. You want to believe in that God. You want to follow that God, but you look at your life and it doesn't seem like that's how it's playing out. I can even feel like this as a pastor. If you preach the gospel, you love people and you seek the Lord, this is what will happen. Your church will grow. You'll get to write books and you'll become famous. You'll get to speak at conferences and it'll be awesome. Then you look at your life and you're like, that seems like there's a big gap here. You know what it's like to have to live in that gap, don't you? To sing songs on Sunday that you believe and that you want to believe. And then look at your life on Wednesday and have a hard time reconciling. What do you do in that gap? What do you do in the gap between what you've heard about God and what you want to believe about God and what you see when you look at your life, what you experience with God? 
on a regular basis? What do you do in that gap? That's what Psalm 44 is about. If you have a Bible, Psalm 44 is where we'll be today. There's a Bible in the chair in front of you, I hope. Um, And if you want to follow along, this is on page 495. But this summer, we're walking through various Psalms. And the Psalms are just poems and songs written thousands of years ago by God's people as they wrestled with all of the different seasons of life and all the different emotions of life. And what's unique about the Psalms is these are prayers and songs that people are writing to God. And yet they're also inspired by God. So they're, in a sense, they're actually from God for us. When we read them, they're from God. But he's given them to us for us to give them back to him. And so Psalm 44 deals with this gap between what you've heard and what you're experiencing, what you believe and what you see. The author, it tells us, is one of the sons of Korah. This was a family of worship leaders in ancient Israel. This was written, it says, for the choir director. So this is a song that's written for the nation to sing. Conceivably, the whole nation at some point or another would be able to relate to this, which means that we should expect we can relate to it as well. And here's how the psalm is broken down. Verses 1 through 8 are about what this writer has heard and believes about God. Verses 9 through 26 are what this writer is experiencing from God. So there's a gap between what they've heard, what they believe, and what they're experiencing, what they see. Look at verse 1. God, we've heard with our ears. Our ancestors have told us the work you accomplished in their days and days long ago. What kinds of things is the writer talking about? He's talking about God's promise to Abraham. God, you blessed him. They had no kids. You gave them one. And you said, this kid, you know, is going to turn into a huge nation. And God, you did that. We, We can see evidence of that. You did it. And God, this nation became slaves in Egypt and You said that you would rescue us and you did. And we've got evidence of that. Look around. We're not in Egypt anymore. We're in the land you promised. We've seen that you can do this. We've heard stories about how you did it. In order to do it, in order to plant us, verse two, you displaced the nations by your hand. In order to settle them, you brought disaster on the peoples. We can see that. We still see the ruins from cities that you destroyed. You gave us this land. You've provided for us. We've heard the stories. And we know that you're the one who did this, verse 3. They did not take the, sword, take the land by their sword. Their arm did not bring them victory. But by your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, because you were favorable to them. 
God, you are the one who's been responsible. God, you're the one who provided. We've heard those stories and we believe it because we, we, we can see evidence of it. We're here, we're in the land. And so God, because of what we've heard, here are the conclusions we've drawn, verses four through eight. You are my king, my God, who ordains victories for Jacob. You're the king. You reign over all things. You're in charge. You can do anything you want to do, God. We've heard stories about that and we believe that. Through you, verse five, we drive back our foes. Through your name, we trample our enemies. I don't trust in my bow and my sword is not what brings me victory, but you give us victory over our foes and let those who hate us be disgraced. We boast in God all day long. We will praise your name forever and ever. God, that's what we've heard and that's what we believe. And that's who we wanna be. We wanna be people who depend on you, who trust in you, who trust in your faithfulness, your sovereignty, your kingship over all things. We believe that you have all power, that you know all things, that you see and you care. We believe that God. But God, we are living in a gap between what we've heard and what we want to be true and what we actually see. Verse nine. But you have rejected and humiliated us. You do not march out with our armies. God, we've heard about how you displaced the peoples to give us the land. You marched out with the armies of our ancestors. We've heard the stories. We can see the evidence, but God, you don't do that anymore. Verse 10, instead, you make us retreat from the foe and those who hate us have taken plunder for themselves. What in the world? They should be retreating, but we're in retreat. Verse 11, you hand us over to be eaten like sheep and scatter us among the nations. You sell your people for nothing. You make no profit for selling them. There's nothing good coming from this. You make us an object of reproach to our neighbors, a source of mockery and ridicule to those around us. You make us a joke among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. People literally look at us and say, you're still following that God? We've heard stories too about things he used to do, but it's obvious you must have been mistaken. He doesn't do that stuff anymore. If he could do that, would I be able to do this and this and this to you? If your God is so powerful and has promised you this land, why have you lost all of these games? Why have you lost all of these battles? Why are you in retreat? My disgrace is before me all day long and shame has covered my face because of the taunts of the scorner and reviler because of the enemy and avenger. God, we've heard about all of these great things and we, we believe it and we want to believe it, but God, we don't see it now. 
And it's embarrassing, God. It's honestly embarrassing. And to take it a step further, it's not just that we don't see you working. It's not just that we don't see you being faithful to us, but we don't see you working and we don't see you being faithful to us when we have stayed faithful to you. That's what he says next. It's not just that you're not helping us. We could understand if we were despicable sinners, maybe. If we were turning our back on you, okay, then maybe you would have right to turn your back on us. But that's not what's been happening, God. Instead, verse 17, all this has happened to us, but we have not forgotten you or betrayed your covenant. We are doing what's right and you are not God. Why? Our hearts, verse 18, have not turned back. Our steps have not strayed from your path. We're doing our best to follow you. When we sin, we follow the instructions you gave us. We follow the instructions you gave us in your law to bring the sacrifices to you. We're keeping your word. We're doing our best. We're doing what you've told us to do. And you've left us. But you have crushed us in a haunt of jackals. That means you've made wild dogs chase after us. We're on the run from stray wolves. We're being attacked by these wild animals, even though we've been doing what's right. You've covered us with the deepest darkness. Verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our Lord and spread out our hands to a foreign God, wouldn't God have found this out since he knows the secrets of the heart? God, you know everything. You know that in our hearts, we've wanted to serve you. In our hearts, we've tried to do the right thing. But because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. The world is just taking advantage of us. And God, it is not right. You ever been there? Have you been there in that gap? between what you've heard and what you want to believe and what you see. I think that we can make a few helpful reflections off of what the psalmist has done so far. First, the psalmist is not pretending. He's not pretending. And here's why that is something that maybe we need to hear is we're pretty good at pretending, aren't we? We feel like God's not coming through for us, but you feel bad saying it, and so you fake it. You show up on Sunday, and you're just like, I'm gonna put on a happy face, and I'm not gonna talk about it to anyone. But the psalmist is not doing that. <laughs> he is not pretending. This is inspired by God. This psalm is given to us 
from this psalmist as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, which means God is okay. God is okay with your honesty. We want to be a church that's okay with your honesty too. We don't want to be a church of fake, two-faced pretenders. He's not pretending. He's being honest. He's also not quitting. He's not quitting. We can have a tendency to experience this gap in our lives between what we've heard and what we're seeing and just quit. And what we fill in the gap with is doubt and despair and we just give up. See, there's a tension here. On the one hand, we want to be people who are honest about the gap. And we want to be people who don't just dive into despair because of the gap. And that is a hard tension to manage, but that's the tension we want to manage. We live in an era of the faith where doubts are cool and confidence and faith is lame. Deconstructing is cool and enlightened and wrestling, clinging, fighting for faith is lame. That's the era we live in. But the psalmist is not quitting on his faith. Even in the face of the gap, he's bringing his questions and his anger and his frustrations. He's bringing those things to God. He's not quitting. He's not pretending. He's not quitting. Instead, he is wrestling. He's wrestling. And he's wrestling by asking honest questions. Why has God forgotten us when we haven't forgotten him? Why has God gone to sleep on us when we haven't fallen asleep on him? Why has God abandoned us when we haven't abandoned him? These are honest questions. These are the kinds of questions that you ask to stay in the fight. But he's also honestly confronting a lie. Underneath these questions, why has God forgotten us when we haven't forgotten him? Why has God abandoned us when we haven't abandoned him? Why have we been doing what's right and God is not doing what's right? Underneath this question, all of these questions, is this psalmist wrestling with a lie that we are all tempted to believe during the gap? And here's the lie. That God's blessing is based on my goodness. God's blessing is based on my goodness. 
If I have enough faith and if I have enough good works, then God will bless me. If I do enough of the right things, then God will do good things for me. And if I don't, then I should not expect God's blessing on me. Now, on the one hand, there's a principle there that is true, that we do reap what we sow. If you sow good things, generally speaking, you can expect good results in your life. That's a principle. But it is not an absolute guarantee. It's a principle, it's not a promise. And here's why that's so important to know. Because when you are facing the gap, when you're minding the gap, to be British, when you're minding the gap, it is easy to live by that lie. God, if I had more faith, you would heal. God, if I had more faith, if I was more obedient, then I'd be married by now. God, if, if I was, was more submitted to your will, then my kid would not have wandered. God, if, if I had submitted my company to you, you would have blessed it. This is a dangerous lie. This lie assumes that God's blessing is based on our goodness, that, that with enough faith, with enough trying our best, God will do good things for us. And this is just not true. And for some, this results in despair. Because the reason that things are happening to you is because you suck so much. And I say that a little tongue in cheek and you laugh, but honestly, there are some people in the room today who believe that. And you're in total despair. For others, this way of thinking results in less faith in God, more faith in ourselves, and more judgment towards others. I was talking to a business leader, business owner, um, a few months ago. He's not in our church, so everybody's off the hook. But he was talking about the reason that his company had grown so much. And he said, my wife and I just prayed every morning before we went to work and God blessed our company. And he was saying it to mean that, well, God's just, he's done this. He was trying to give God the credit. But as he continued to talk about it, 
I think it became obvious even to him that what he had come to believe is that he was manipulating God. As long as he kept doing these good things, then God was obligated to bless him. And that is a hard thing to square with business owners who have had their business close and they were completely faithful in prayer. How do you reconcile that? This psalmist is wrestling with that lie. And here's how I know that. Look at what he says in verses 23 through 26. Here is his final appeal. He says, wake up, Lord. Why are you sleeping? Get up. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide and forget our affliction and oppression? For we have sunk down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up, help us. And then here is his final plea. Redeem us because of, and do you see what he does not say? Redeem us because of our faithful love to you. Redeem us because of how much we've kept your covenant. Redeem us because of all the great things we've done. Redeem us because we've tried our best. Redeem us because we've been faithful to pass down the faith to our children. Redeem us because we've always tithed. Redeem us because we've always served. Redeem us because we, we, we. He doesn't say that, does he? At the very end here, he's been honest. He's not pretending. And he has not quit on God yet. And he is wrestling this lie to the ground that God's blessing is dependent on me. Here's why that would be ultimate bad news. Because even though the psalmist, I think, is being totally right here, like he's done his best to keep the covenant. If God's blessing was based on how good we are, no one would deserve his blessing. And so his final appeal is wrestling that lie to the ground. His final appeal is, God, would you please redeem us? Would you please lift us up? Would you please save us? Not because of what we have, but based on your faithful love. His final appeal is not himself, it's God. And that gives us some truth for the gap. Here are some truths for you to know during the gap. Sometimes good people suffer while evil people prosper. The fact that things are going well is not an automatic indication that God is behind you or that God approves of what you're doing. And the fact that things are going terribly is not necessarily an indication that God is opposed to you or displeased with you. 
Sometimes good people suffer while evil people prosper. That's a truth for the gap. Here's another truth for the gap. There may be a delay between your suffering and your salvation. There may be a delay between your suffering and your salvation. Here's what I mean. Your moment of need and your moment of crying out to God may not result in immediate deliverance. There may be a delay. Here's another truth for the gap. Even still, God remains king. He is sovereign. He is still powerful and in charge, even when life falls apart. How do you reconcile those things? I don't know. I went to high school camp for a couple of days and we were having a great discussion with a group of freshmen about that question. And one of the the leaders who was sitting there is this wise woman in our church. She said that, that what has driven her deeper into faith in God's sovereignty, faith in God's power and control, what's driven her deeper into that is actually having to walk through suffering. She can now find more comfort and she has greater confidence and courage in her suffering as a result of desperately clinging to God's sovereignty. We see the psalmist doing that. Verse four, you are my king, my God. That hasn't changed just because of verses nine through 26. That's a truth for the gap. God remains king. Here's another truth for the gap. Redemption comes not based on our power or our faithfulness, but based on God's. In the end, the psalmist does not approach God on the basis of his own faith or goodness. He approaches God on the basis of God's faithfulness and goodness. And this is the path to knowing God in the gap. When God seems to be sleeping on you, desperately cling to his power and love. This is what people who walk with God learn to do. Let me tell you two stories of people who have gone before us. The first is of a man named Joseph. He grew up in a family of brothers. His brothers hated him. They beat him up and they sold him into slavery. He was transported to a foreign land. He ended up as a slave in this household and he was framed for a crime that he did not commit. He ended up in prison. 
but God was with him in the prison. And through a long series of events, he ended up getting out of prison and becoming the ruler over the entire empire. And later he had an opportunity to get back at his brothers. And instead he forgave them. And here's why. Here's what he learned. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Throughout Joseph's life, he did the right thing. And for the majority of his life, bad things happened to him in return. But in the end, he was not bitter because he had come to trust. He had come to cling to God's power and love. He realized that even though all this evil was being done to me, God somehow was working it together for a good result. Let me tell you the story of another guy. His name is John. He goes by John the baptizer. And there's never been a human more faithful to God. Let me rephrase. There's never been just a human more faithful to God. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest man besides himself. He was excluding himself, I think, from that category. And John the Baptist was the forerunner to Jesus. He's the one who prepared the way. He told everybody, Jesus is the one who is to come. Jesus is the Messiah. You should follow Jesus instead of me. You should go after Jesus. Jesus is the one that all the Old Testament was pointing to. Jesus is the one that has come to save the world from their sins. Trust in Jesus. That's what, who John the Baptist was. And he built this incredible following And then he got arrested and he was in prison waiting to die. And then he received news that Jesus had been healing random people that were Gentiles. And he received that news and it concerned him because doesn't he know I'm in prison? If, he, if he's the Messiah who's come to do what we thought he was going to do, if he's the Messiah who I've heard about and I've believed and I've even hoped in, why is there a gap now between what I've heard and what I've told people and what I'm seeing? Why am I in prison? So he sends these messengers to Jesus to ask him a simple question. This is Luke 7. Verse 18, then John's disciples told him about all these things, how Jesus is healing randoms. And so John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord asking, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Do you see what's happening to him in this moment? 
He's having a hard time squaring what he's heard about and what he's believed before with what he's seeing now. And so the same guy who used to be proclaiming Jesus is the one who is to come. Jesus is the one that was promised is now asking, are are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? Here's how Jesus responds to him. He replied to them, verse 22, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. So that's all the, the stuff I'm doing. Is that what John's concerned about? And then Jesus ends with a promise. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Or blessed is the one who doesn't fall away on account of me. Blessed is the one who does not look at me in the gap and think, okay, then the things that I've heard about and the things I've believed and wanted to be true must not be true because of what I see Jesus doing. The one who is not offended by Jesus, the one who is not, who does not fall away because of Jesus will be blessed. That is, in the end, something good will happen to you. And the disciples have the opportunity to watch this play out. The disciples were beginning to learn how to trust Jesus and how to follow Jesus. And one day they find themselves in a boat on a lake and this terrible storm arose. And these were experienced boatsmen and they were afraid for their lives. And they plead with Jesus. Verse 23, wake up, Lord. Why are you sleeping? Get up. Don't reject us forever. Don't you even care that we're going to die? Jesus gets up and he rebukes the storm and it stops. And then he looks at them and says, where is your faith? Where is your faith? John the Baptist and the disciples let us know that this is not just an Old Testament problem of Psalm 44. This is an all-time problem. There will be times in your life where there is a gap between what you see and what you've heard, between what you believe, what you want to believe, and what you're experiencing. Jesus tells John and he tells his disciples, hey, look at me and what you see from me, don't let it cause you to fall away. And so what do we see in Jesus if we look at him? In the gap between what we've heard about God and what we want to be true about God and what we're experiencing, in the gap, if we look at Jesus, what will we see? And what we will see is not just a 
a savior who can stand in the boat and calm the storm. But what we will see is a savior who also has to plead with God, wake up. All this has happened to me, but I have not forgotten you or betrayed your covenant. My heart has not turned back. My steps have not strayed from your path, but you have crushed me in a haunt of jackals and, has, and have covered me with the deepest darkness. What we see in Jesus is someone who knows what it's like to have to read Psalm 44. What we see in Jesus is not just someone in the boat during a storm who can calm the storm, but what we see in Jesus is someone on a cross, someone who has been perfectly obedient, someone who has been perfectly faithful and yet suffers a curse rather than a blessing. And just like Joseph, Jesus can look at what God is doing, even while he hangs on the cross and he can endure it because he knows that they mean this for evil, but God, you will use it for good. You will accomplish the survival of many people through this act. When you are in the gap and you look at Jesus, you see someone not only with the power to calm the storms and to wake up and stop the suffering, but you also see someone with love enough to endure the suffering for you. So when you are in a gap between what you've heard about God, what you believe about God and what you're experiencing from him, Trust in God's faithful love demonstrated through Jesus. Romans chapter eight goes like this. The apostle Paul says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? This is a famous verse. And he could just skip to verse 37, but he doesn't. Here's what Paul does instead. Is he quotes from Psalm 44. Verse 36 is a quote from Psalm 44. Here's what Paul's doing. He's saying, New Testament Christian, if you ever feel like Psalm 44 is true about you, if you ever feel like persecution that you're experiencing or the famine that you're experiencing or the nakedness that you're experiencing, the lack of resources. If you ever feel like the danger that you're in or the sword, the war that you're enduring, if you ever feel like those things mean that God has turned his back on you or that God and his love have abandoned you or that what you've heard about God and what you want to believe about God, if, you've, if you're ever tempted to think that because of what you're experiencing, that those things are not true, then just like the psalmist in Psalm 44, plead for God's faithful love. And guess what? God 
and his faithful love are yours in Christ Jesus. Can any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So in the gap, do not lose heart. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for sending us your son. Thank you for being the king over all things. God, would that truth comfort us today? God, thank you not only for being the king, but also being the suffering servant. Jesus, we praise you for going to the cross. Jesus, we praise you for enduring the hostility and the shame. We praise you, Jesus, for experiencing the curse of sin so that we might experience God's blessing. Holy Spirit, we praise you for raising Jesus from the dead and offering us eternal life. And Spirit, we ask that you would hold us, keep us. It's in Jesus' name that we make this appeal. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?